Isaiah chapter 41. Um, and I want to read, you remember last time, just to, to review and to recap what we talked about last time. We talked about this metaphor of water. Uh, those thirsty ones, the thirsty souls coming to, uh, coming to Christ for uh, forgiveness and healing and the washing of the water uh, in the metaphor of uh, bringing forth Eden in the desert. Uh, when everything looks hopeless here, remember that God is working to bring about the new heavens and the new earth as the kingdom of God is spreading throughout the world. It's like water on dry ground. And of course, the enemy hates that and is constantly seeking to destroy that. And so we look for its final fulfillment in the day when the last enemies will be destroyed and cast into the lake of fire uh, and there will be a new heavens and a new earth. All of this in the imagery of water, and we looked at all of that last week. It's the restoration of everything that we long for as human beings made in God's image of love and intimacy and beauty and wisdom and peace uh, summarized by every man uh, and every woman sitting under their own vine tree and under their own fig tree. Uh, this beautiful picture of rest and peace and everything is provided for and the heart is at ease. It finally only comes uh, in uh, the last day when Christ comes again. But we have tiny oases of rest as we move forward in this life. The temptation is, just like it was with Israel, as we go through this desert, uh, as we go through the desert of this life, and especially in times when things are uncertain and difficult and hard, uh, it is tough for us fallen human beings to wait on the Lord and to trust him and to hold fast to him even when it looks like everything around us is falling apart. In ancient Israel, they grabbed onto idols. Uh, and uh, this, uh, it was a different era before Christ. And I want to, before we discuss these idols in depth, I want to point out what the scripture talks about, how things were different before Christ in the world. Uh, Christ came and he ushered in a completely new era and a new way of things uh, taking place, pouring out his spirit on all flesh. To understand that, we need to understand how things were in the old covenant. Before Christ came into the world, because of the fall, God gave all of humanity over to the control of the evil demons. That sounds so bizarre in our ears today because we live in a materialistic world and we don't like to think in terms of a supernatural realm. Uh, and again, because we are in a new era when Christ came into the world by his resurrection, uh, Satan was cast out of heaven. The, the spirits have been bound for a thousand years to no longer deceive the nation. So they don't have the control over the nations that they did before, uh, before Christ came into the world. And I'm not just spouting this stuff up. This is actually in the scripture. Both Paul and Moses testified that the gods that the heathen worshipped were demons. Scripture from beginning to end assumes a supernatural realm. Uh, we must be careful, though, to make sure we clarify and make some distinctions in our head before we talk about this, because this is important to see. The Manichaean position, uh, which is an ancient 
Persian sect. It, uh, Augustine and others got sucked into it before they were converted. Uh, it isn't Christianity. It's this idea of two eternal principles, good and evil. And there are good gods and there are evil gods, a good principle and an evil principle, and they continually battle uh, each other throughout all of eternity. And it's kind of up in the air who's going to win. But both of them are eternal principles of good and evil. Um, you see this principle at work a lot in uh, popular culture, in books, in uh, movies, and that sort of thing, where there's two uh, forces, one good and one evil, that fight against each other. Uh, Star Wars, of course, you have the good side of the force and the bad side of the force. Uh, this is an ancient pagan way of looking at things. That's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about evil demons. I'm talking about creatures of God. Uh, God created all of them. He created in a whole angelic world of spiritual beings. Scripture sometimes calls them gods. For instance, in Psalm 82, it says God judges among the gods. Uh, that there is this heavenly family of, uh, uh, of um, angelic beings. And some of those beings are fallen. Uh, some of those f beings have uh, fallen, they've rebelled against God, and it's their purpose to stir up as much trouble against the kingdom of God as they can. God's uh, revealed plan in Eden was that men and women would spread and multiply throughout the whole world and spread the kingdom of God, God's dominion, through his image bearers throughout the whole world so that love and peace and fellowship and joy and the fruit and the tending of the garden and order and dominion would spread throughout the entire world. And through the instigation of the devil, man rebelled against God. They sought to have dominion over each other instead of over creation. Uh, and God gave them over. Especially, there's an interesting passage in uh, Deuteronomy um, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 7. Moses says, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, he separated the sons of Adam. He set the boundaries of peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. Now that phrase is set the boundaries of the people according to the numbers of the children of Israel. That there's a textual variant there that he set the boundaries according to the number of the sons of God. Uh, sons of God is another phrase for these angelic beings. It's used that way in the book of, of, uh, of Job. Whether or not that's accurate or not, the idea, which is repeated in many places in Scripture, is that the nations are under control of these demonic forces. These are the gods of the nations. Marduk of Babylon and Chemesh of Moab. And these were not just figments of imagination. They worshipped demons. And in the midst of all of it, and when the, the idea is when the Tower of Babel was built and God scattered them, God set the boundaries of the nations according to the numbers, according to his plan of order. Daniel talks about the prince of the people of Greece and the prince of the people of Persia and all of these gods of the nations that Paul tells us are demons, and Moses himself tells us are demons. So with this in mind, on the one hand, demons are very real. Uh, the spiritual realm is very real. 
But the scripture teaches us that Christ has been given authority over them all. That's why this era is different than it was before the fall. This is why, if you can imagine any king throughout the world ordering that 90% of his gross gross domestic produce, uh, all the everything and and the workforce and slaves all go together to build him a tomb um if you can imagine how that would have taken place and yet the pharaohs had godlike power and they could do that uh the the persia could do as he pleased there's no king in the world that can do what the king of persia did things have changed since christ came into the world the gospel is casting out demons throughout the world um very quick thing on demonology. Now, when we talk about this, then, when we talk about the gods of the heathen, as I get ready to read Isaiah 41 in this last part here, the idea is these gods are, they make promises. The ancient people did not worship the gods because they loved the gods. They worshiped the gods because they were terrified of them. Uh, they they were trying to protect themselves from calamity, from death, from the from plague, from disaster, from crops dying, from everything that could happen to human beings, and they saw how the neighbors around them had worshipped their gods, all the different gods of all the different nations. But the problem was, as Moses goes on to say in Deuteronomy thirty two, he says the Lord's portion is his people. God called Israel and says, you're mine. Out of all the nations of the earth, you are mine. This is why it was such an affront to God to have them leave to be just like all the nations of the world, to go after the other gods, to go after Chemosh and all these creatures that God made to offer sacrifices to demons that hated God and hated man and wanted destruction. How can it be that they would turn their back on the living God and offer their firstborn children as sacrifices on the wall. How can that possibly have happened? Except that they've gotten sucked into this. That was the event that actually caused God to finally turn his back on Israel in the days of Manasseh. And by from that point on, Israel was done. Israel and Judah. And God sold them into captivity. Now comes the polemic against these gods, these idols. As I said last time, the idols were carved images where they would capture uh, the power of the gods and seek to manipulate that power uh, to get a blessing for themselves or to keep the god from destroying them uh, or what have, or leave them alone. Simply to convince the gods to leave them alone would have been terrifying. So listen to what Isaiah says here, starting at verse 21 of Isaiah chapter 41. Present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring forth and so show us what will happen. Let them, that is the idols, let them show the former things, what they were, that we may consider them. And know the latter end of them, or declare to us things to come. Show us the things that are come hereafter, that you may know that you are gods. Yes, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and see it together. Indeed, you are nothing. Your work is nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. I have raised up one from the north, and he shall come. From the rising of the sun he shall call on my name, and he shall come against the princes as though mortar. And the potter, as the potter treads clay, 
who has declared from the beginning that we may know, and former times that we may say he is righteous. Surely there is no one who shows, there is no one who declares, there is no one who hears your words. The first time I said to Zion, Look, there they are, and I will give to Jerusalem one who brings good tidings. For I looked, and there was no man. I looked among them, but there was no counselor, who, when I asked of them, could answer a word. Indeed, they are all worthless, their works are nothing, their molded images are wind and confusion. So remember, in this context of God making a promise to bring about water for the thirsty, he's going to send his servant, which we're going to get to in the next chapter. But this is hundreds of years in the future. And what he desires of his people is for them to learn to rest, to be at peace, and to wait. Instead, they want to turn to the idols who are going to speed things up for them, who are going to protect them. It comes from distrust of God's word. Just like Satan said to Eve in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say this? Well, here's what God knows. He's trying to keep this truth from you. God can't be trusted. If you want something, you're going to have to reach out and grab it for yourself. And she saw that it was good, and she took. That verse, by the way, repeats as the heart of natural man to see that it's good and to take it. Uh, it's what the sons of God did to the daughters of men in, in Genesis chapter 6, which I've said before. So now God is saying, okay, you want to worship the idols? Well, bring them here. Bring them here. Let's talk to them. Uh, let's, let, let's have them explain where everything came from, how everything fits together. Let them explain how the nations of the world have all come together to bring about what you're looking for. Let them explain how they've done everything. What happened with the flood? What happened with creation? Where Abraham came from? Let them talk about all this so we can see and we can consider it all. But here's one thing that's astounding in all of the mythologies of all of the gods. If you've ever read any of those mythologies of the ancient cultures, it's all full of chaos, disorder, war, infighting, bickering, complaints. These are not, you don't put your trust in Norse gods. You don't put your trust in Babylonian gods. You have no idea what they'll do. However, God is a God of order. He sits above the circle of heavens. He's the one that called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. He's the one that opened the Red Sea and drowned Pharaoh in the water. He's the one that does good or does evil to uh, for Israel, for his people. He's the one that orders all of the nations. He's the one that orders what all the nations are going to do. No matter what their gods are doing, God has created all of them. As we see in the book of Job, Satan can't even do anything to God's people without God's permission. None of the gods can. And so you're going to carve a piece of wood and think that wood is going to save you because it's got the power of a God that I created. That doesn't make any sense. He says, so go ahead, pronounce your judgments so that we can see it and be dismayed together. Isaiah was very good at mocking all of the gods of the heathen. He says, your work, verse 24, you're nothing. Your work is nothing. Whoever chooses you is an abomination. Let's pause there for just a moment on he who chooses you is an abomination. When you think today in our cultural battles, 
the sins that are being portrayed as the worst possible sins that humankind can commit. Uh, you think about all of these sexual sins or all of these other things that people do and these horrible things. But to put our perspective firmly on the ground of a biblical perspective, the greatest abomination that we can do is take God's name to be a vain, light thing and to worship the gods of the heathen. When we look to anything other than the one true God who sent his only begotten son to take away our sins, who provides all of our needs, who heals all of our diseases, and all he asks of us is to wait and be patient. And instead we turn our back on that and put all of our trust and all of our hope in politicians, in the current news of science, the kings of the earth, in our armies, in our wealth, in our bank accounts, all of those things, that's an abomination. Uh, the word is very strong in the, uh, uh, in the Hebrew. It's the same word that's used in the Old Testament for the most heinous of sins. It's something that makes someone unclean inside and out. It's an, it's a, an a absolute affront to God. Those that committed this kind of an abomination were to be taken outside of the camp and stoned. And it says, thus you shall remove uncleanness from you. Uh, by the way, before anyone accuses me of touting capital punishment for idolatry and these kinds of sins, Christ was the fulfillment of all of that. He was the one that was counted an abomination, taken outside the camp, crucified as a criminal to remove uncleanness from the camp. Therefore, we don't stone homosexuals and adulterers and blasphemers and idolaters anymore. We call them to Christ, who was taken outside the camp for us. That being said, let's move on. Um, and he cleanses all of our sins and heals all of our iniquities. So he's saying, who, he who chooses you is an abomination. Think carefully about who you serve. Are you serving the triune God whose servant he sends in chapter 42, who tells us to rest and be patient? Are you serving the lusts of your own heart? Are you serving the... Uh, your own strength, your own power, your own ability, uh, the, the next... Uh, thing that comes along and all you've got to do is look at the news and you can see how many idols people set up. It causes them to be restless and fearful and uh, because your gods, the creator of heaven and earth does as he pleases and he has made promises to us. Therefore, we cannot fail. That's what we saw at the beginning part of Isaiah 41. When you put your trust in idols, you have no idea what they're going to do. And so there's no rest for the soul there. And God would have us find rest. So now he says, here's the thing with idols. Can idols predict the future? And here's an interesting thing to think about. God has reserved the future for himself alone. Now with that, let's make a clarification. We as human beings, as creatures, uh, we can make standard predictions about certain things. Uh, tomorrow, I have plans on what I'm going to do. I'm going to work on some writing in the morning. I'm going to uh, do this and that and some other things. And, and uh, I, I, I have a pretty good dinner prepared so I can cook dinner tomorrow. Um, I didn't tell you that, Susan, but I'll, I'll take care of dinner tomorrow. All these kinds of things. Now, as all of you know, all of those plans could very easily go out the window. None of those plans are are infallible plans that will most certainly come to pass. 
Why not? Because I don't have power over the weather. I don't have power over circumstances. I don't have power over whether or not my car will actually start. I can do relative predictions and kind of keep it in good repair the best I can. But as you know, very often those things go out the window. And we get really irritated when our plans go out the window. James, the Apostle James, sums it all up when he says, you're creatures. You say, tomorrow we're going to buy and sell and go to the store. No, say, if the Lord wills. And his point in that is not to add God talk to your language. The point of this is to understand that we don't have control over the future. We can make plans as human beings, remembering that the Lord directs the steps. But only he, uh, he is the only one where there are no forces greater than he is that can stop him from completing his plan. If you, once again, you follow the, the terminology or the, the mythology of the Babylonians, the gods were always fighting with each other. Um, and uh, that you see the same thing in Greek and Roman and Norse mythology. Always the wars going on between the gods. And somebody stronger would come along. The strongest god of all was pretty much indifferent. Just let them all fight it out the way they wanted to. And whoever won, won. Um, the Canaanite gods was a whole cycle. There was um, Baal and Ashtaroth, and when Baal and Ashtaroth got really frisky, then the earth would bring forth its fruit. Uh, the seed would fall on the ground and the, the crops would grow. And then Mot, the god of death, would come and kill Baal, and Baal would die, and there'd be a lot of people crying, and then it'd be winter. And then by the time winter was done, you had to convince Baal and Ashtaroth to get out of their grave and get frisky again so that the earth would come around and that was all the fertility exercises and the Ashtaroth poles and all of that involved the Ashtaroth poles were just pornographic images that were designed along with the live acts going on to get Baal and Ashtaroth moving so that the earth would bring forth stuff this is what they had to do and God is saying okay call a king a hundred years in the future give him a name Tell us what you're going to do by name. God has reserved the future for himself alone. And this is what he's getting at. He's going to, in verse number 25, later on he's going to talk specifically about Cyrus. This is 150 years in the future. But now he's hinting at this. Uh, he's saying, uh, from the rising of the sun he shall call on my name. That is from the east. Out in the east, he's going to call on my name. Can you imagine that? And yet we see in Ezra chapter 1, King Cyrus calling on the name of the Lord and saying, anyone who worships Jehovah, let him head back now and build the temple. By that, I don't believe that Cyrus all of a sudden became a believer. And yet he did call on the name of Jehovah and he did order the rebuilding of the temple. And so now that's the challenge that God gives the idols. Your idols can do that. Your idols can save you. Call on your idols. You're going to worship this stick of wood and the power within the stick of wood that can't even move from one place to another place. You have to pick it up and carry it. He's going to talk about that in chapter 46. Right now, okay, ask him what's going to happen a hundred years from now. Ask him what's going to happen tomorrow. 
and see if he can declare the end from the beginning. There's no one who shows. There's no one who declares. There's no one who hears the words of God. And yet, look at verse number um, 27. First, he says, I say to Zion, that's the dwelling place of David and the temple of God. First I said there, behold, behold. In other words, look, look, look. Uh, this echoes back to chapter 40. Thou that tellest good tidings to Zion, behold your God. Lift up your voice. Here's your God coming. And then the next one, I will give to Jerusalem one who brings good tidings. I'll send a preacher of good news to Jerusalem. The one who will declare that the kingdom of God has come. The one who will declare the end from the beginning. Because God can infallibly do that and no one can stop him. No one can get in his way. No one can harm him. He doesn't just guess. He doesn't get the name partly right. He doesn't get the event partly right. He names the beginning from the end from the beginning. I looked among them. God says there was no counselor. There was no one whose word you can rely on. They're all worthless. Their works are nothing. Their molded images are wind and confusion. There's a concept here I'd like to leave with you, and, and we may talk about this more as we go, because this is crucial for us. Uh, there was a philosopher uh, several years back that uh, had a parable on uh, falsifiability. Um, and he said, his name was Anthony Flew, and he said a proposition that is not falsifiable is meaningless. And he was trying to describe why he wasn't a Christian. He says, I'm not a Christian because every single discussion about God I've ever had with Christians comes down to those propositions are non-falsifiable, which means, in effect, they're meaningless. And here's what he meant by that. If I say, there's a dog. Look, there's a dog over there. I mean something positive. There's a dog. I also am rejecting the negative. I'm, I'm saying, there's a non-dog is false. There's a dog is a falsifiable proposition. Otherwise, it doesn't mean anything. In other words, if I say, ooh, there's a dog running by there, and my wife captures it and says, oh, by the way, this is a cat, then I'll say, oh, yeah, hey, you're right, I was wrong. Okay. Now, when you talk about falsifiability, you're not talking about whether it is wrong or not. It's whether you're actually making a concrete assertion about anything. For example, if I say, hey, there's a dog over there, and my wife captures it and says, no, this is a cat, I say, yeah, that's what I meant. I meant a dog. A dog that's actually a cat, because sometimes dogs can look like cats. Well, this, this cat's purring. Yeah, sometimes dogs purr. Well, this cat's meowing. Yeah, sometimes they meow. This cat comes from a long line of cats. Well, yeah, cats, dogs can do anything, and sometimes they come in the guise of a lot of cats. And as I keep going, I sound like a Monty Python routine. My proposition proves to be non-falsifiable and therefore meaningless. And so when I say there's a dog, if by that I mean there's a bowl of jello, I'm not saying anything. I'm just yabbing. This is what Anthony Flew meant. And what he was getting at was actually valid. He's not a believer because he hasn't actually met the God of the Bible. The gods that he has heard of, I don't believe they exist either. The ones that he's heard of in so many churches are really non-falsifiable gods. They are gods where our religion simply becomes God talk. 
instead of gods that actually concretely work in history. And so, for example, um, God says uh, in, in Jeremiah, uh, go out tomorrow morning and see if the sun is going to come up in the morning. When the sun comes up in the morning, remember that I did that. That's something concrete that happens. If the sun doesn't come up tomorrow morning, well, then we live in a chaotic world and then maybe I'll cast off the church because I'll change my mind. But the reason is all you've got to do is look around and you can see a very orderly world because God has decreed it. And so throughout scripture, you have these things where God is actually intervening, intervening in history and challenging his people to falsify it so that they know he's saying something concrete and real. I'm going to open the Red Sea. Go ahead, try me. Take the rod and strike the Red Sea. I'm going through that with my grandkids in our Sunday school class. And, and my, my eight-year-old grandson, um, he says, Grandpa, is this really real, like for real's real? Or is this is just like, is this for real's real? And I said, yep, this is for real's real. <laughs> and so he says, okay, well, what about that bush that was on fire that wasn't burning out? What color was it? And I said, well, the Bible doesn't tell us. It looks like fire, so I'm sure part of it was probably blue and some of it was probably uh, yellow and, and orange, just like fire. And they understood this. Because I'm not talking about a flutter in the head. I'm talking about a real thing. And this is what God is challenging the idols to do. We're not talking about God talk now. That's what the demons do. You can use a lot of words and be really holy, but when we talk about our religion, we're talking about a real new heavens and a new earth, a real resurrected body, a real spiritual realm, and God who truly intervenes in history. And therefore he can be trusted. That's the God that needs to be proclaimed. And as I've said before from my sermon, this is what the good news is, the glad tidings. The gospel is that Christ has come, has cast out the kingdom of the devil, and is setting up his kingdom, a real kingdom. Not the way we expect it, but he still runs. He still rules his church by his word and his spirit. We're going to talk more about what this means, the concrete things that this means. But the whole point here is this. God has made concrete promises to his people, and we can absolutely count on them. Don't turn your back on idols. Don't fear the threats of men, because nothing can harm you. Because God has made you promises. The practical outshoot of that is you can use your wisdom to make decisions. You can live boldly. I, the interview just came up today by Jinger uh, Duggar. And I never read it. I never watched any of the Duggar. It's the 19 kids and counting. I'm very familiar with Gothardism. And they were, they were immersed in Gothardism. And Jinger has gotten out of that, and she made this quote, it just is hard to hear, where she said, we were taught as children that if we did something wrong, God would punish us. That God was always on the verge of punishing us if we stepped out of line. Those are the gods of the heathen. That's not the God who says, fear not, Jacob, I am with you. I am your God, don't be afraid. 
And with all of the shouts and all of the threats and all of the loud noises of the idols and all of the jumping around of the gods of Baal, the contrast in chapter 42, my servant, who I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the Gentiles. Excuse me. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastland shall wait for his law. This is real. This is not just God talk. Um, and we're going to talk more about that next week. With that, let's close in prayer, and then we'll take any questions or comments you might have. Our Father in heaven, what a tremendous promise that you have made for us. What a, a glorious thing. Uh, there, we know, Father, there's a whole spiritual realm that you have revealed us. Give us glimpses of, uh, of angels and demons and, and everything else in this war, but you have conquered it all through your blood uh, through the blood of christ our king of kings our lord of lords set high above all principalities and powers so we have nothing to fear teach us father to rest to trust to be at peace to love one another boldly to live boldly to make courageous decisions knowing that you're not an angry god out to get us but you love us you're our heavenly father who has promised to never leave us or forsake us. Forgive us our sins. Lift up our heads. In Jesus' name.